0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am so grateful that you are joining me today for an interview with Jim Selman. And Jim has been a leading thinker and practitioner in business transformation since 1977. He has authored several books and articles, including Leadership. And his newest book is called Living in a Real Time World Six Capabilities to Prepare Us for an Unimaginable Future. And this book explores six, uh, as I mentioned, conversational capabilities that we can cultivate to navigate uncertainty and learn what we need to know when we need to know it. More of an art than a science, these innate capabilities tune the way we experience our circumstances, our relationships, our past, our present, and our future. And these are things that I always love talking about, especially as we Uh, explore the future of work and where organizations are going. So I'm really interested in talking with you today. So welcome to the podcast, Jim.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, really great to have you on. I know you've been doing a lot of interesting work over the years and the decades. And I always think it's uh, interesting to ask someone to compress that down into a few moments, but maybe you could share a little bit of background of how you got to where you are today.
1: Well, Andy, I, uh, I started uh, in the, in the mid-70s doing a lot of large-scale systems change kind of work, primarily in the public sector uh, for a company that's now called the Lloyd Touche. And I became somewhat fascinated with the question of why it's so difficult to implement anything at scale. And as a consequence of that, I took my consulting business and practice and sort of moved it into the world of people. And at that time, the idea of organizational culture didn't exist. So I was one of the first people to conceive of culture as a phenomenon and begin to think of ways to change culture and create culture. And then that's gradually grown to the point that I uh, was perhaps one of the first people to introduce the concept of coaching as an alternative paradigm for work and for management. And uh, from there, uh, I've been doing a lot of pretty innovative, interesting kinds of organizational transformational projects. And working with uh, corporate leaders in terms of how they're dealing with the future and how they're dealing with uh, many of the challenges that exist in business today.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And you mentioned, you know, really this idea of culture and how that defines organizations. And it's seem I feel like it's a hot topic these days. I mean, how far back does that go? And was that something that people were really talking about? You know, in the 80s or the 90s, or is it, do you think it's something that's more popular as a conversation today?
1: No, I think it's, it was a big conversation in the 80s and 90s. I think in the 70s, it didn't exist. I think culture was strictly ballet and opera uh, in those days. But the question really was, there's something going on that's making it difficult to change. So for example, during the re-engineering era, and the billions and billions of dollars that were spent to try to re-engineer organizations, most of them uh, reportedly have failed or fallen short. And the consequence of that is because of people and culture, according to the Wall Street Journal. And uh, the question is, what's going on? And so it's led me to a, a different approach to understanding people and who we are as human beings and understanding culture having more to do with our conversations than anything tangible. One of the big problems we have is we tend to objectify people call them human resources. And we objectify culture as if it's the same as a table or a chair. And when you objectify something, you actually make it more difficult to deal with it. Because now you've, your interpretation of it is going to be argumentative and, and definitional, but not really give you much power to change the phenomenon or to, to impact what it is you're talking about.
0: If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. So how do we, as you you mentioned that we, the problem is we objectify people and we objectify culture. We just talk about it like it's a thing that can so easily be changed. How do we change that mindset? How do companies shift so they're not making that mistake?
1: Well, I don't, first of all, I don't think you change the mindset. I think you create a new one. So in in my case, I've been working a lot with a a man named Dr. Fernando Flores over the years, uh, who's, in my view, a seminal thinker, in terms of being able to appreciate that language is really the medium in which we uh, deal with reality, and that uh, if we really want to uh, change something, we need to be able to observe what we're talking about. So I can observe conversation. I can't observe values, for example. So I can talk about values all day long, but it doesn't help me change what I'm talking about. But if I look at values as something that gets expressed in conversations, then I can begin to say, well, if I want to change the value set or change my values, it's going to show up and, and, and occur by changing my conversation.
0: We really, I like what you said there, you, you can't observe values, but you can observe how they're being lived, right? I mean, you can observe conversations, you can observe people's actions, you know, are they acting with integrity? Are they focusing on profit or the customers or whatever the important values might be?
1: You see it in their actions. Well, I, I, yes, you can infer that, but you can't observe it directly. And uh, in a real-time world, I mean, in a, in a stable world, that doesn't change very often. You can build models and you can build interpretations You can discover recipes through trial and error. And then you apply those recipes and you'll more or less get a predictable result. The point is, in a stable world, you can develop patterns and and behaviors and and recipes and apply them. In a world that's changing faster than we can even comprehend, that idea of looking for recipes is ineffective. So you have to shift from more of a knowledge-based approach to living much more of a generative and creative approach, what I call navigating. Uh, When you don't have maps of where you're going, then you need to invent the maps as you go. And that's a very different uh, paradigm and a very different mindset for any leader today in an organization because so much of our planning and our thinking about the future is grounded in the past. It's all more or less predictive as an extension and and taking trends and so forth and Mm. projecting them into the future. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that increasingly we're discovering that the world doesn't turn out the way we would like to imagine it will be.
0: Right. But isn't history a pretty good predictor of the past? I mean, isn't it important that we study history to see how things have unfolded to inform us and
1: to, you know, help inform our predictions or our decisions for the future? Well, that's, that's the tricky part. And that's really what the common sense that I'm challenging in this book. Hmm. Uh, because I'm really saying from a common sense point of view, what you said is, of course, true. Yeah. Well, however, in a rapidly changing world, common sense isn't common anymore. It doesn't work. Or if you rely on it to make your decisions and, in, and invest your resources, you're taking increasing risk because we have more than ample evidence from disruptors in business to new technologies and so forth, that reality doesn't care what we think and that we're really dealing with something that's unprecedented. And that's really the, the question is if you accept that that change is not only faster, it's accelerating.
0: Yeah. I, I heard a saying recently that uh, the rate of change is faster than it has ever been before, and yet it is slower today than it will ever be in the future. So the rate of change keeps keep getting faster Things are changing all the time. And what you're saying is that we obviously can't do things the way we've done in the past. We have to change. We can't just rely on knowledge and history. We have to be able to take, I think more of an iterative approach is what you said, to be willing to try different things and and pivot faster to be successful.
1: Well, I I mean, all of that's true. I mean, the 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 metaphor I'm using is Star Trek Enterprise. And if you really buy into the idea that we're going where no one's gone before, and if you accept that premise, then we're going, we have to acknowledge that we're inventing the future. We're not going into a future that's there waiting for us. So if you go back to your original point about prediction, uh, those past-based predictions imply that the future is a certain way if we can only predict it correctly. Uh, another both philosophical and practical way of thinking is that there is no future there waiting for us to arrive. It's going to be whatever our actions produce. So just as our current reality has been produced by our historical and past actions, our future is also going to be a function of our actions. Right. What's organizing our actions? If if your actions are based on your predictions, you're going to get variations of what you predict or not. And what I'm suggesting is, is that leadership and organizations need to give up their attachment to the way it was or they're imagining how it might be and start really getting clear what are we committed to produce. Mm-hmm. Let the commitment drive our actions rather than our predictions determine our commitments. Yeah. If your view of reality determines what you commit to, by definition, you're going to get a bit more of the same. And if you're in a real-time world making decisions that way is almost certainly a formula for failure and being left behind.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking about, I I like what you said about, we sometimes think we're entering this future that's already there, but we're defining the future based on the decisions we make, right? The actions we take. And it reminds me of something I've thought about many times, which is that we always fret over these really big decisions. And then they almost always turn out right right? It's almost like in many situations in our life, we couldn't have make the wrong decision because things will work out. You make a decision and then you live with that decision and you, you move on. Now it may not have been the best choice. Sometimes we have to pivot and we go back and, and change. Um, but what you're saying is that, you know, companies need to find their future. They can't rely on what's been done in the past and what the history tells them. Can you give an example of where a company has made a mistake with this? I mean, obviously I think of classic examples like Kodak completely ignoring the movement into digital, even though they had the technology. But uh, what else, you know, is there an example to kind of bring this to life?
1: Well, there, there are lots of them. And in fact, I read a list someplace of, who uh, was showing conversations that, that have, have no possibility, you know, like the head of the uh, patent office saying pretty much everything's been invented that can be invented or common conventional wisdom, things like we can never run a four minute mile. Or we could, we've got the Kodak and the Polaroid and the corporate examples. Digital computer, uh, you know, completely missed the. You know, they thought the future was main, it was small, small computers. IBM almost went out of business on their by building their corporate commitments based on their historical successes, and that by investing more in what we think made us successful, has worked more or less in a stable, slow-changing reality that's nothing illegitimate about that. It's only uh, dangerous and, and difficult when suddenly the rate of change happens. And that happens if you make your decisions based on what made you successful in the past, your likelihood of, of failure or something bad happening is pretty high.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how you know things have changed. We always think that we are at this point where how could we possibly invent everything, anything new, right? We have all these crazy bells and whistles technology and yet we're always inventing new things. So tell me a little bit more about this book that you have now, Living in a Real-Time World. And you know, you and I were talking right before we started recording about the problem with people always trying to predict, people always wanna predict the future even though nobody really knows what's going to happen. I think people are a little bit obsessed with making those predictions, right? If you ever turn on cable news, which I don't watch at all, but I feel like it's full of talking heads making predictions about the future, even though they have no accountability to well, whether that prediction comes true or not.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about it, a prediction is just an assessment. It's a judgment. Okay, how well grounded that judgment is or how, how thoughtful it is, it's still a judgment. And linguistically speaking and practically speaking, uh, one of the big uh, ahas in the work I've been doing is showing people that judgments and, and assessments can never be true they are always relative to an observer and they're not facts they're conclusions they're assumptions they're built on some a narrative or some structure of thinking that has you see it that way so there's nothing wrong with them but they're not true or false the problem is when we start to believe that our assessments about the future are the truth okay and then we start living and acting consistent with what we think Now, if you looked at missed opportunities, whether it was the railroads missing the airline industry or various kinds of myopia, it's just part of the human nature is that you kind of see what you see and you do what you do based on how you view your world. The problem is if the world is changing faster, then you have to figure out a different way of viewing it. Now, again, if you stop trying to control the future and you start creating the future, then it's a pretty easy move. The problem is if you try to control something that you don't control. So I tell people frequently, and it's very much at the center of this book, is that we don't really have much, if any, control. But we always have a choice in how we relate to the world. We always have a choice in how we relate to what's happening. And that's what's emerging in this real-time world, I think, is what you might call a relational view of reality. Yeah. Where if you want to change something, change your relationship to it. So if you're frustrated, change your relationship to frustration, rather than change what you think is frustrating. You would be so,
0: a, Yeah, so true. I mean, you you see people all the time that are complaining about changes that are happening in their organization or with technology or things that are happening to them. Instead of embracing that and saying, "Okay, this is an opportunity for me. How you know how can I take advantage of this and that." can be true for companies or for individuals. But I want to, I want to shift and, and talk about it from an organizational standpoint. Where is, I know you can't make a prediction, but where is work going? What is happening to jobs? How should people that are involved in talent development
1: be thinking about this? Well, let me, let me give you, let me finish the, the other question just slightly and then go back and then address what you just asked. Because my view is, is that the world is filled with models and suggestions and people telling people what they need to change. I'm saying if we're gonna deal with a real-time world, we have to see that all of the capabilities we need to deal with it are already within us. You know, everybody has an ability to read, whether you're literate or not. So what I'm suggesting in this book is that we all have the fundamental capabilities that we need to succeed and prosper in a real-time world. They're already within us, they're already available. Our ability to learn, our ability to relate, our ability to listen. You know, those are already innate capabilities. The question is now, can we exercise and cultivate those capabilities to deal with this unprecedented reality? Now, if I, if I try to look at the future of work from my point of view, the first thing I'll always say, or the future of anything, by the way, I'd say, I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. And I think that the compare our prediction game is pretty much a waste of time. I think we need to ground our assessments about the future, but just get that it's not, it doesn't give us any more certainty than if we didn't. Now, if we're looking for certainty, we have a problem. If we're looking for clarity, we have what we need to begin to navigate effectively in this real time world. Now, personally, I typically will take the more dramatic expectations and predictions as an assumption but not as not as something that I think is necessarily true. In fact, not true. So for example, I buy into the idea that work is dramatically undergoing change in the sense that the concept of a job is disappearing. Our relationship to employers is disappearing. Our closely held common sense like business produces jobs is false. I think that political narrative is, is a con you know, trying to convince people that if we do good things for business, we'll have more work and more jobs. I think it's an absolutely shameful con because if you look at it, business has consistently been getting rid of jobs at an increasing rate. So whether it's call centers or kiosks in the airport or robots, uh, the nature of of work itself is changing. Now, what I'm proposing is that in a real-time world, one of the capabilities you need to be able to develop is the ability to make an offer. So stop asking me what do I need and start telling me what do you got. Show me something that I don't already know and I might need to hire you to work with me. So we're all becoming what you might call solopreneurs. You know, individual entrepreneurs who are navigating in the world. Now, the millennials, I think, are are sort of onto this with the gig economy idea Mm -hmm. uh, and things of that sort. But at the end of the day, how you make a livelihood is going to be a function of what you have to offer and what you're committed to producing. And if what you're committed to producing is needed and wanted, you'll do fine. If you're waiting for the world to somehow make an offer to you, that's not going to work. Now, the practical example of this that I'm fond of talking about is in the area of recruiting. You know, it's one of the most wasteful activities in business. Okay. It's It's a game that everybody knows is a game and they don't particularly like, where if as an applicant, you show me your best side, and I'm trying to make judgments if you fit a predefined job I've established, particularly in a corporation. So I'm judging you to see if I think you'll fit this job profile. And then we have what you might call a game of show and tell. So I'll judge you and you show me and we'll go back and forth. And at the end of the day, we'll either hire you or we won't. If I don't hire you, you're usually disappointed. And if I do hire you, there's usually a fairly long learning curve. And if you're not very effective in making those initial decisions, it's a highly expensive activity. Because you're going to be with me for some period of time before we realize we made a mistake. And then you go your separate way. So it's a, it's a dance between the employer and the applicant that's not very effective. Now, an alternative, which I am suggesting, is what I call a dialogic interview, where rather than trying to see if you fit the right slot, we have a dialogue in which I tell you what I'm trying to do in my world, and then you and I have a dialogue to see what you have to offer. In the course of that dialogue, you're creating the job. You're not seeing if you fit the criteria. And as a consequent, in that it's either patently obvious that you're the right guy and you've already created your job and you hit the you hit the job with less learning curve. And you're, you know, it's now your commitment that's driving the future rather than you trying to see how you fit into my world and as a consequence you begin to build much more partnership co-creativity collaboration and generative act action in the organization practical example of this a ceo i was working with liked this idea he was interviewing a a fellow that uh, for a senior executive job who everybody else thought was terrific and had given the thumbs up to in 10 minutes It became obviously that it was a mistake from both points of view, just by saying to the fellow, you know, this is what I, this is what I want and not what do I think you should do. And in that dialogue space or dialogue context, they parted amicably. It was obviously a mistake on both parts. And once the other people in the organization had seen what what had happened, they agreed. They just didn't see it because they were so busy trying to judge and evaluate this fellow's resume and this fellow's past experience to see if he would fit this historically defined past-based set of criteria. So anyway, that's just a practical example of the kind of changes in organization that are probable in this real-time world that we're living in. Another area is that is that if you can't trust your predictions, what do you do about your budgeting and your planning systems because they're all based on predictions and trend and extending trends again i'm saying that at the end of the day we need to be clear what's the future we're committed to produce not what is the future we think will happen right what are we committing to we don't know what's going to happen in the future
0: but what are we committing to now i, I see what you saying about uh getting into this uh the gig economy or solopreneur economy where um, people are able to go sort of pitch their services and say, hey, I see what you're doing over here. This is the value I think I might bring. And the company says, great, we'd love to have you on board. Um, but the companies still have to find each other. And I also understand what you're saying about, you know, I've heard the best entrepreneurs or leaders will go out and find great talent and then find something for them to do rather than just filling certain roles. But when you're in a big company, I can hear people pushing back and saying, look, we're, we're in a big company. We have roles that we need to fill we have jobs that need to be done, we're starting this new project and we need a developer or we need a project manager. How do we go about filling that if you're telling me don't fill roles based on you know, past definitions and to, to really just find great people and then see what they can do?
1: Well, obviously, I think it takes a little time to change the mindset of the executives and the human resource recruiting systems and logic. Uh, but if you're looking to fill a role called project manager, I would say, start by saying, what do you want the project manager to create or produce? Not what you want the project manager to do. So if I say, I want the project manager to produce a low cost new product in half the time. Okay, then now let's start having a dialogue with the applicants, even in the current system to say, you know, here's what we're trying to do is produce a new product in half the time. What do you got to say about that? And and begin to shift it to a dialogue, to a conversation about this man's or woman's commitment and how they approach creating that kind of a future. The other thing that's pretty clear to me, uh, Andy, in the world of knowledge, knowledge is changing in this real-time world, or our relationship to knowledge. Uh, because in the past, we think that you have to know something before you can do something. In a real-time world, you may not know how to do it. You may not have ever done it before. So I'm, I'm promoting the idea that there's a, there's a distinction called existential confidence that I talk about in the book. Existential confidence is the kind of confidence you have when you're taking on something you've never done before, where you don't have any kind of experience. And maybe nobody's ever done it before. And you have the confidence that you'll be able to deal with and take care of whatever needs to be taken care of down the road, even if you can't imagine it or predict it or see what, see what it involves. And that's distinct from ordinary confidence, which is where you've done it before, you know how to do it, and you're now going to do it. You know, you're, certain, you're fairly confident that you can win because you've got a lot of experience and evidence to back you up. But in the real-time world, we need to have a lot more existential confidence if we're going to be able to authentically and collaboratively co-create this future that we're living into.
0: Yeah, and I can see that being true because the world's knowledge is so readily available now, we don't necessarily I mean in the past you would definitely hire people for their knowledge. Now I would hire people more for their capabilities or you know the potential you see in them and let them go out and learn. The thing that they need to learn. I mean, I've heard plenty of great stories from people who took on a stretch role in an organization and volunteered for something they had no idea how to do, but they knew they could go learn it. And then, you know, put in a lot of long nights of taking an online course, reading books, whatever it is, uh, going to, to classes, learning from other people. And then, next thing you know, they're the expert in the organization because they took the time to go learn it and they had the, you know, the gumption or whatever the word might be to go and you know, take that initiative and, and learn it. And I can see us moving more in that direction. And so along those lines, you think about hiring or developing people. If you're thinking about, you know, where do I choose to invest in developing people? You're probably looking more at what, you know, people talk about high potential in organizations, right? Developing our hypos or high potential employees or managers, whatever it is. You're looking more at what are their capabilities? where's their potential? Rather than what knowledge do they have now that we want to promote?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I would say if I were, and I do say uh, to my clients, look, you want to hire people based on their commitments, you know, and stop the belief that the, the company's job is to develop them. If they're committed, they will develop and they'll grow and they'll expand like like any of us would do in that situation. But the idea that you are an object that I'm going to develop and that we're going to start with some set of criteria that you're going to fill. Again, all of those are sort of common sense ideas if the world isn't changing. But when the world is changing rapidly, those same ideas will keep you stuck in a very counterproductive and dysfunctional way of relating to the future. The hard thing is really to let go and accept the idea that reality is what it is, and our job isn't to try to figure it out. Our job is to work with whatever is, whatever's going on, and create the future. I sometimes say you know, mountain climbers are not overcoming obstacles to get to the top. They're working with those obstacles. They're using those obstacles to accomplish the, the mission or the goal. And they're not fighting reality. Uh, so many corporate people have this view that the job of management is to control to control people and to control the world and make things happen and i suggest that that's a that you're going to get more of what you resist and that it's going to be deadly if you're living that inside that belief in a real time world because you're going to be you're going to become a spectator and you're going to be sitting there watching television and watching the news and reading books and having conversations about the future rather than having conversations to produce the future Yeah. How many times have you been in a a meeting talking about productivity that didn't produce anything? (laughs) Right.
0: This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. Okay so a lot of big companies out there are making transformations right a cultural transformation digital transformation strategic transformation you know a lot of companies realize we need to change we need to shift we can't do things the same as we have done before how a- do they adapt to this and and prepare themselves for the future of work no matter well, what well
1: the first thing is the word transformation like the word coaching in a lot of our lexicon has yep. now become vogue so everything now is a transformation but in fact i think there's a big distinction between change Mm-hmm. Even big change in transformation. That to me, transformation is a much more fundamental and sustainable shift in how you relate to something, not the way you do something. So you could become a lot more, you know, develop significant changes and even important changes without necessarily transforming anything. Nonetheless, I would really say to any company that you've got to look at two different realities. You've got to look at the reality you predict, let's call that the predictable future, and then you've got to look at the reality, let's call it the possible future. The possible future is not anywhere close to the same as the predictable future. And I've got lots of examples where a company is predictably would have been lucky to get 2% growth, you know, get 40% growth in less than a year by changing how they relate to the questions, how they relate to the circumstances, how they relate to each other in the organization. And what they do is they shift to much more of a a kind of entrepreneurial mood the way many startups are, rather than keep grinding and turning the the crank on their larger corporate uh, systems and practices. But the idea is if you're going to live in a real-time world, you better be living into the possible future not the predictable future. Got it. So obviously
0: we need to make decisions and we need to make commitments. And a lot of those are based on our predictions where we think things will go. But what you're suggesting is take a step back and realize there's a difference between the possible future, which is the the future that you've identified as to be the most likely or where you'd like things to go. And also realize that there is a possible future and there are other outcomes that could happen. So we need to prepare for all of those different outcomes so we're not taken off guard.
1: Yes. And, and the possible future is not just a bigger prediction. The possible future is an invention. It's a creation. It's an IC or why not or what if. And then develop the new habit of being able to say, "What's what are we committed to make happen? And then plan how to do it rather than letting our planners and our planning mindset determine what we commit to. If you let the predictable future determine the boundaries inside of which you make commitments and allocate resources, you're always going to be living into that predictable future.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, it's the old George Bernard Shaw quote about reasonable people adapt themselves to the circumstances. Unreasonable people adapt the circumstances to themselves. In a real-time world, you better be in the latter camp, Hmm. living living to make the circumstances fit your commitments rather than trying to let your view of the circumstances determine what you commit to.
0: It's fascinating. All right. So we'll kind of wrap this up here, but the for someone listening who may be involved in defining how to develop the people in an organization, you know, developing people, whether it's managers or helping people upskill for new roles, get them prepared for how their job may be changing, knowing that we can't predict what those jobs will look like. You know, jobs five, 10 years from now will be completely different from today. What's one more piece of advice do you give to them to think about these things and help prepare their organization for the future?
1: Well, I think, again, I don't think I have an easy formula or anything, but I I do notice that in many organizations, there's still a kind of paternalistic relationship between senior management and, and the rest of the organization. As if the people at the top are supposed to know and the people at the bottom need to buy in and go along with whatever the plans and the thinking is. So the first thing I would do is say, let's begin to acknowledge and shift that we start relating to people like they're a whole lot bigger and they know a lot more than perhaps we've given them credit for in the past. I sometimes say that we talk about our employees like their children that we wish would grow up rather than talk to them as adults who sometimes behave like children and start interacting with them as responsible, committed, capable people, and not try to play amateur psychologist and try to figure out what's going on inside their heads. You know, I think if, if we begin to, to commit to commitment, commit to creating a culture of commitment, and begin relating to each other responsibly in that way, then one is that there's very little room to hide. People have to be responsible for their commitments. And they either keep their promises or they don't. And you stop perpetuating this culture of explanation and and excuses, which effectively keeps people buried in an historical narrative about the way things are justified based on their history. And you start getting people to be much more real-time in terms of what are we committed to, what's happening, what's missing, are we succeeding, are we not? And, And basically, it has people begin to talk straight and kill a lot of this sort of background noise that undermines and defeats and slows us down at best and stops us at worst and keeps giving us this sort of self-fulfilling future that at the end of the day is very dangerous and very unproductive. So I would say recognize that people are authentic if you have an authentic conversation with them and quit trying to figure it out and start having explicit conversations about the things that matter, and then begin trusting each other to coordinate and, and work together to produce the futures that we want. And if trust is missing, have a conversation about that and produce it. Or part ways, because you can't tolerate lack of trust in a real time world. It's unacceptable. It's a deadly, undermining, self-destructive kind of way of operating. So now, trust-building is a skill, not a desire. You know, relationship is a skill. It's not a good thing to have if you can find it. You start moving all of the leadership conversations in the direction of observing what's missing to fulfill our commitments, and then organizing conversations in order to produce what's missing. If we start addressing what's missing then we're either gonna have a future we're committed to, or we're gonna have the the correct feedback in order to work on what we need to work on to produce the future that we want. Or we quit BSing ourselves that we're committed to that and commit to something else, change the game. And stop waiting around
0: to see what the future holds when It's not a future we're moving into, but actually something we're creating based on the actions that we take.
1: Exactly. And I mean, I think that the biggest threat to success in a real-time world is people being spectators, living like spectators in a society, commenting on everything without any action. Point of view doesn't change anything. Absolutely. Makes sense. Jim,
0: this has been uh, so interesting.
1: Uh, If people want to
0: get the book or learn more about the work you're doing, where's the best place for them to go?
1: Well, Amazon.com has it. It's living in a real-time world, six capabilities for preparing us for an unimaginable future. And uh, also I have a website at realtimeworld.com. There's a hyphen between real and time, real-timeworld.com. Uh, time And there's some other links and so forth there, but uh, you can get it in Kindle or print. And it's also available in Kindle in Spanish. And in the next couple of... Uh, weeks or months, we hope to finalize the Spanish print edition as well.
0: Great. So living in a real-time world, we'll put links to all of those things in the show notes. Jim, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to share. I'm grateful that uh, I got an introduction to you from Dr. Gay Hendricks, who's been on the podcast in the past. And uh, I hope you have a great golf game with him later.
1: Well, thank you very much, Andy. And uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care.
0: If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. slash community, and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know, and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development HOTSEAT. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible, and we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.